an adult child pioneer who walked so we could run. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. And today, we are diving deep with queen icon legend, Tian Dayton, one of the pioneers of the adult child movement. She was at ground zero, y'all, when all this shit began. Tian has saved the lives of so many people, including my own. Her books have played a significant role in my healing journey. In particular, her book, The ACOA Trauma Syndrome. And it was through reading this book that I realized I was suffering from a form of PTSD and that that feeling I've talked so much about and the uncontrollable, irrational emotions, the insane thinking and behavior, the way my peace of mind got hijacked whenever I was in a relationship were all, in fact, a post-traumatic stress response. And I will be diving into this with Tian as well as a myriad of other topics. This conversation is filled with gems of wisdom, so let's not waste any more time and have at it. I am so freaking excited to introduce our guest. We have Tian Dayton, who has had a 40 plus year career doing the Lord's work. She is a nationally renowned speaker, expert in psychodrama, trauma, addiction, adult children, and self help related issues. She is the senior fellow at the Meadows, author of over 15 books, including two of my faves, the ACOA trauma syndrome and emotional sobriety. And she has developed an approach for incorporating experiential work into treatment programs and group work, which is called Relationship Trauma Repair RTR. Hi, Tian. Hi, Ashley. So glad that you're here. Thank you for having me. Okay. So I've heard you share that you grew up uh, with an alcoholic father. And I've also heard you talk about your first adult child aha moment, which, you know, you first began to see the serious impact your upbringing had on you. This moment was very similar to mine. So I was hoping that you could share a little bit about that aha moment. So remind me of which aha moment. (laughs) It was uh, get in the fight with your husband. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. So that was... That was an aha moment that, um, well, I'll back it up a little bit. We, I married, uh, I was 23 when I met my husband. He was 24. We married when we were 20, when I was 25 and he was 26. And when um, I was 27, we had our first child. 
we were in New York City. We lived in the, the Poconos at the time. Mm-hmm. But we were we we both had we had matched families. His mother was alcoholic. My father was alcoholic. And I had had a, a typical sort of alcoholic child experience visiting his mother, whom I loved. Wonderful woman, but an alcoholic. So there were all those gaslighting crazy, you know, will she be sober? Is she drunk? Is she on anything? Is she not? Is this normal? Is it not? Um, And anyway, I left early this visit because my husband was doing some work in New York and had to stay. Took my daughter back to Pennsylvania, basically in a snowstorm. So when I say I left early, I really (laughs) got back to our little farmhouse and Found on my shelf, knew this had to be, knew this was alcoholic related, but remember this is, there's no term like ACOA, there's there's not a, the thought that children are really impacted by this at this stage, I mean, this is a long time ago, and so I had a book that a fellow, Wheelock Whitney, who, who helped to start the Johnson Institute in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, and uh, was on the board of Hazelden and so on. So he was part of that early movement, and it was mm-hmm. called I'll Quit Tomorrow by Vern Johnson. Mm. And I read it twice while taking care of a baby. So I was <laughs> desperate for knowledge. And what I took out of it is that, or was that, I didn't drink. Neither my husband and I drank at all. Um, but we still had what looked like dry drunk behaviors. hmm And all I knew was that I was damaged by the experience of growing up with alcoholism and that we both had the kinds of behavior behaviors that an alcoholic exhibits, only we were cold sober. So I started to do the 12 steps on my own. I had already uh, tried going to AA and stuff like that with a friend encouraging me to, I, I literally never drank, but I was so so open to anything possibly being wrong with me that I checked out an AA meeting. And at the end of the meeting, this man looked at me and said, I think I think there's a meeting down the hall you belong in. It's called Al-Anon. <laughs> and um, I did some Al-Anon, and then we made this move uh, to an area where there wasn't too much of that. And so I had awareness. My mother had been in Al-Anon. But I started working the 12 steps for something that had no name at that point. Mm-hmm. And later, uh, it did get a name. And it wasn't that much later. I mean, I'm talking, I was 27 here when I was, I think, 30 or 31. There was the first Adult Children of Alcoholics conference in Orlando. And my husband and I went to it. And it was really a movement that was begun by a chance meeting between Janet Whitehits and Gary Seidler, then uh, owning Health Communications. And Janet had a dissertation about it, something she called Adult Children of Alcoholics. They published that book, and a, a no-name publishing company became a, a success. They, they, this book went on to the New York Times bestseller list for two years. So we started coming out of the woodwork as ACOAs. So was that the first time that you heard the term was when uh, you went to that conference, Adult Child? Yeah. I mean, I read her book before that. So I I was hearing the term, but that's when it was, that's when it was born really. And my moment, you did ask me about a moment and it was mm-hmm. in a fight with my husband. 
and we were, I was, I remember pausing in the flight and thinking we are acting like we're drunk, but we drink nothing. And something is wrong with us that, that we don't understand. And, and also I, I knew, I knew that I didn't really want to change my life. I liked my life. It, it seemed like it was inside of me mm-hmm. and inside of him. Mm-hmm. Well, that's amazing that you guys were both able to go on this journey together. I'm assuming. I know. Uh, yeah. With our, I mean, we must've taken <sighs> our little daughter with us cause we didn't leave her. So I, I, you know, and there it was it's suddenly a conference full of information, full of paths out. But the, but the most important thing was to, to name it, to say, uh, this is something that is wrong with you. And what I did uh, with the ACOA trauma syndrome was really follow Janet's book. And then I followed it again. In, um, and we told Gary, told the story of meeting Janet in the soulful journey of recovery. But I, I connected the when the trauma information came out in the 80s. I came to understand that the ACOA syndrome is a post-traumatic stress disorder in which pain from childhood is being lived out, triggered and lived out in adulthood. It, ha- it may be dormant. And that's the confusing thing with ACOAs. We, we get out of our houses and think we leave the disease behind. Mm. And what, but these kinds of diseases are state dependent. So what triggers it are like experiences in the same way a, um, a soldier might hit the deck when he hears a car backfire because he associates the sound with gunfire, though he's in the a Chicago parking lot, not Vietnam sort of a thing. An ACOA will will produce, you know, pretty normally. But then when we get into intimate relationships and try to raise children and be a family, that is our uh, car backfiring. Yeah, I was I was really blown away when I finally realized that I was actually having trauma triggers and attacks. And for me, it, you know, this all showed up for me in dating. Um, but just, I mean, I was just blown away. Like for so many years, I had no idea. Like if I didn't receive a text message back in 30 minutes or, you know, whatever, just the amount of gut-wrenching, debilitating anxiety. And I like I thought I was just like a pathetic loser and I couldn't understand like why why my emotional reactions were so strong and um to you know to realize that adult children suffer from you know PTSD or complex PTSD. I mean at first I just thought it was I felt a little bit silly saying it at first or that it was, you know, like a little bit of a crutch, but um, I was hoping, could you explain a little bit what complex PTSD is compared to regular old PTSD? Well, it's, it, this stuff happens on an arc, right? There are ACOAs who have varying degrees of, of reaction, some more than others. Mm-hmm. And one of the factors that uh, I look at with people is what were their buffering experiences in my own life I had a wonderful grandmother I I was close to my church which was a very supportive sustaining community I lived in Minneapolis Minnesota which was a very solid world I had friends at school I had a job I, I had many many surrounding factors that were stable school was stable Mm-hmm. So that as my home became very unstable, there were other parts of my world I could lean into. Mm-hmm. This is a huge factor in why some people do better than others. 
So I, I wouldn't take any one set of symptoms and say that that's how any your set would not necessarily apply to another ACOA. But for symptomatology, in the book, I, I create my own list. And on that list are things like at the top of it, you know, emotional regulation is a big one, right? That's part of complex PTSD, but it's also just part of the ACOA trauma syndrome that we have trouble regulating our responses. We get triggered. We go from zero to 10 and 10 to zero without any speed bumps in between, Mm -hmm. which is why I wrote emotional sobriety, because we need to learn to live in four, five, and six. ACOAs bond with these other either intense shutdown states or high uh, intensity states. And we go shooting back and forth between the two. And we don't recognize ourselves in four, five, and six sometimes. We don't function as easily. Now, that said, every ACOA is different, mm-hmm. you know. But, but when I see extremes or black and white thinking or rigid thinking, I look for trauma. And once you resolve that, the thinking, feeling, and behavior starts to sort itself out a little bit. So emotional regulation is big, anxiety, depression, um, somatic, uh, you know, we we somatize, right? Mm -hmm. We don't don't talk about our feelings. Our body holds our feelings and our body does the talking for us. Our back hurts. We get diseases. I mean, physical ailments, that that is very uh, linked to trauma, physical ailments. Trying to think of some of the other more common ones. Mistrust can be a real part of it. And mistrust of things going smoothly. Mm. Um, Waiting for the other shoe to drop. Hypervigilance. Very good. Yeah. Hypervigilance is is, uh, part and parcel of the trauma syndrome because we, we spend, and this is where I think the codependency develops, if we're, and you allude to that in your story, um, when you have an alcoholic parent and you're the one who's in charge of them, you were put in charge of your mother. I was put in charge of my father. Uh, although that didn't matter. My mother was just as tricky to deal with because she was such an enabler and so codependent and in there. But as kids, what we learn to do is read our, read our parents' faces for signs of mm. danger. We become hypervigilant and you know, a raised eyebrow, a a, cha- a change in eye gaze, a, um, a sudden movement, um, fighting, silence can be very triggering for someone who has been traumatized as a child in a home where there is, uh, you know, a, a traumatized, a dysfunctional home often alternates between chaos and avoidance, mm-hmm. chaos and avoidance. You know, uh, it's chaotic, and then everybody slams doors, disappears into their bedrooms, and comes out when they're calmed down and smiling again. Yeah, as if nothing ever happened. Nothing ever happened. Right. Nothing ever happened. So it never gets talked about and worked out. If it gets talked about and worked out, you grow. That's how you learn and grow emotionally and become a stronger, better person. But when it is never talked about, it just goes underground and, and it affects your self-image because you start thinking you're the one with the problem. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you do try to talk about it, your parent, you know, confirms that and says, you know, what are you talking about? You're the one with the problem. I'm fine. Because the denial that is part of the, um, the system that of alcoholism is so powerful 
that nothing can stay alive in its, you know, you, you don't get to have anything but denial. I mean, we're seeing that on a national scale now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> denial of reality, the, the virus is bad, the, you know, whatever. And that's very damaging. It's very damaging. Mm-hmm. I think that many more people probably are familiar with the term codependency as compared to adult child. You know, Codependent No More has um, 8,000 reviews on Amazon compared to the ACA Big uh, Red Book, which has about only 1,000. But I think many people would be shocked to learn that codependency was actually an offshoot of the ACA movement. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Well, codependency, the, uh, the original 12-step model is the addict and the para addict, the, para, the alcoholic and the para-alcoholic, the alcoholic and the co, co-alcoholic, co-addict, who, who was, you know, in tandem with the alcoholic. We now refer to that person as the enabler. But originally it was co, co-dependent codependent. So codependency became a sort of a catch-all for someone who exhibited traits similar to addiction, but that maybe wasn't addicted to alcohol or drugs. So to everyone's great surprise, that term just went gangbusters through, and it's been around a long time, which is the other reason it has so many reviews. Codependent I hit in the mid eighties, I think it was, and Bradshaw, there's a coterie of people who started using that term and making it quite famous. Mm-hmm. But the, the other, you know, if ACOA drew people out of the work woodwork, codependent drew everybody out of the woodwork. And of course, the, the beauty of that is that we can identify as something, our darker sides that we're more ashamed of. Mm-hmm. The downside of that is that we start identifying as a thing, you know, instead of um, getting more particular and in, in, in being the individual we are, you know. Um, so codependency is, he, here's my concern about codependency. I see it as trauma-based. I see it as fundamentally a product of hypervigilance mm-hmm. that we are so used to making something outside of ourselves more, more central than what's inside of ourselves that we we base our own thinking, feeling, behavior on what's outside of ourselves, right? If somebody else is in a good mood, we're in a good mood. If somebody's scared, we get anxious. We don't... Uh, center ourselves in our in our own inner resources we wait for something outside of ourselves to tell us who to be ourselves or within ourselves and so i see codependency as trauma-based a lot of people see it as a cluster of characteristics and then the implication is if i just change these characteristics i'll be less codependent i think resolving the trauma resolving the hypervigilance the anxiety and really understanding its origins is a um, more lasting way to get over codependency. That is my thought. Because otherwise we erect all these boundaries, right? And we think, I mean, people have trouble with our ACOAs and codependents having intimacy. And they start, you know, we go from having no boundaries to too many boundaries. Yeah. So it, there's no easy solution to this stuff. Uh, resolving the wounds is, is where it's at, I think. 
Well, yeah, exactly. And, and I talk about, you know, for me, I had the realization that my dating issues were related to my upbringing, but then just having that awareness on its own wasn't sufficient enough to produce any sort of internal changes. You know, my next relationship ended up being even crazier than ever. Um, and that's because I hadn't really taken a good look at the causes of in conditions, you know, and, and done that, um, that rewiring, that reprogramming. Um, now, when did, um, for the, for adult, go ahead. Just, of course. Um, it, I think the relationship codependence and ACOs need to focus on is the one with themselves that, um, we have to recognize our, our tendency to project, to reenact and to transfer mm. or pass on to our present. Mm-hmm. It's hard to tolerate the kind of pain that we've gone through as children in a painful home and just feel it and live through feeling it without attaching it to what triggered it. Here's why that happens. When we're traumatized, our thinking mind shuts down and our limbic world revs up. We have, our limbic world is in charge of emotions and sense impressions. So if our limbic system is all revved up, we are picking up on all the sense impressions in the environment, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, all of that. And we're feeling feelings very strongly, but we have no storyline because our thinking mind is shut down. That's because it's a fight, part of the fight flight response. And we're not meant to think, we're meant to run. We're meant to react. That's good if you're being, uh, if a truck is coming at you, you want to get out of the way. It's not so good if it's a repeated cumulative experience of a terrifying parent. Mm. And why do children get so scared in their home? We are little, they're big. They have the power, we're dependent. We are children with the developmental a capacity for thinking that we have at a varying age. Children are fundamentally egocentric. If there's a problem in the house, we think we did it. And then if we have a parent who reinforces that and tells us we did it, we're in big trouble self-image wise. You know, we're in a home that is not helping us talk through and work out what we're seeing. More often it's telling us we're wrong, what we see and what we sense is wrong. So we learn to doubt our own perceptions. That is uh, part of why it were, our dependency and our, our le- a feeling that we can't escape mm-hmm. and our sense of helplessness because our size uh, vis-a-vis and power relation vis-a-vis the adults in the home make us more vulnerable to trauma. An older kid, depending on when your parent was an addicted person or uh, you know an off person can can be part of how affected you are you know if if in your young developmental years your parent was quite sick and you had no buffering factors then you can get quite sick in that experience quite traumatized and your self-image is affected your ability to regulate your emotions is affected your ability to be comfortable in intimate relationships is affected and all that needs cleaning up uh, or it leaks out into the relationships we form later. Mm-hmm. And we make it about the relationship because it's too hard to tolerate the feelings that get aroused in us when we try to attach to somebody. They're attachment issues. Mm-hmm. We need to work through those kinds of attachment issues so that we can attach in a 
in a healthier way. And nothing's perfect. But what we need to do when we do attach, if we've made a fairly good choice, and it's it's not a, a person who is, you know, we want to say it's the person I've got a, a bad, cho- I'm not good at choosing. Yeah, but it's not always that. We're, we're also not good at being in intimate relationships. It's, it's some of both. I mean, there are no, there's no perfect person out there to find, especially if we're not perfect. We're going to find people sort of at our own level. It, to, to wait for a perfect person to come along and then to get suspicious when things get difficult means you're going to have trouble ever being in an intimate relationship because the, an intimate relationship is difficult. It's very difficult to be really close to somebody because it requires that both people really own their own reactions. Mm-hmm. And before they project them on each other, try to take responsibility for, for what's going on in them. That's where the river meets the road in intimacy, I think. Mm-hmm. Two questions. Um, one, I really minimized the impact of my upbringing because I was always taken care of. Um, I had never been you know, physically or sexually abused. And so my understanding was that others had surely had it much worse than I had. And then you know, to piggyback on that, um, I've also wondered... I was very, very consciously aware of what was going on in my home. Um, and I'm wondering, is that does that have any more or less of an impact um, on a child who maybe only has uh, unconscious awareness of the dysfunction? I can make generalizations about the ACOA experience. Yeah. For me, give you a good answer to this. Yeah. I would need to spend... Um, and really understand your experience and tease out all the little ramifications. And if I give you an easy answer to it, it's not going to apply that easy answer to themselves. Um, these are these are the this is the resistance to therapy. ACO. I'm not. I'm not saying you have this. Obviously, you don't. But ACOAs don't want to do that hard work. Oftentimes, mm-hmm. it's um, we want to get a quick fix. I mean, when I started this treatment and and also working with it as a therapist, because I've gone both as a as a client and as a therapist, um, I, I became keenly aware of how much in trauma we want to figure it out in our heads mm-hmm. and get it straight in our heads and get somebody to give us the right answer. So it's it's going to all be clear and then it'll go away. Mm-hmm. But that's just not how it happens. It happens through the hard work of peeling the light back the layers of the onion and doing the healing work. And it's why I, whenever I work with people, I mean, I'm retired now. I only do training, but that, you know, that you wind up working with people when you do that too. But um, when I would have clients, I, I asked them to be in 12 step programs in one-to-one therapy. I, I have a group practice. I had a group practice and I knew that what came up in group was going to be evocative. They need one-to-one therapy, maybe not once a week, maybe twice a week. Um, when it's coming up, maybe they need program and they need access to it all the time. Because once this stuff comes up, you need a very good solid container. You also need to change the way you eat. You can't eat a bunch of sweets. You can't drink. You can't, you can't, um, what are the other trigger foods, you know, all the white flour foods, all all of that kind of stuff. It's stuff that spikes your system, that makes your system unstable. 
if if you're uh, if your eating is out of control, you're not going to recover. If you're smoking, it's going to get in the way of your recovery. If you're exercising too much, it's going to get in the way. If you're a love act, it's going to get in the way. If you're um, I'm trying to think of what else it might be. Uh, but the, all of those things will interfere with your recovery as an ACOA because we're dealing with trauma resolution and it's deep and it's very dis, it's disequilibrating when you start to do it. But every time you're disequilibrated, if you can understand, it's a step up in, in establishing your better equilibrium. So not to fear being slightly disequilibrated get it and then find your way out of it but find your way out of it by slowing down by feeling the feeling by articulating it by sharing it by listening as others share theirs by seeking support um i think that's the so there is there an easy answer to your question uh i don't know i mean i'd have to know what happened before you were seven i'd have to know the nature of your father your relationship with yep. him mother what were your what's your role towards your mother What's the way, what was your thinking about yourself at the time? What did it give you a sense of empowerment? Did it give you a sense of fear? Did, what, it, there would be so many factors to, that would need to be responsibly teased out to give you the answer that would be helpful to you. But there, but you ultimately, if you're in a healing process, I talk about that in the soulful journey of recovery, you don't even need the answers because what happens, and you learn this in a 12-step program, if you really put your souls in the room, as we say, um, the answers reveal themselves as you feel the feelings. And those answers are worth their weight in gold because they're yours. So I would say the, the offhand answer and the one that I want to, you know, send with a message to your listeners may or may not apply to them or even to you is that if you made it to age seven, relatively solidly, you got a good shot at, being well yeah <laughs> you really do <laughs> you grow a lot. you're very for you're you've got a lot formed by seven mm. of stability by seven and what i try to do with clients is get back to that child that felt better about themselves get back to the child that was less destabilized get back because what trauma does is it causes us to lose touch with the part of ourselves that was stronger mm. because we just get so so stuck in the reenactment and the reliving of the trauma every time we get close to get close to getting close you know every time we get triggered we start to relive and if we don't understand that if we don't back it up and say what am i reliving now how can i experience this and learn from it instead of just throwing it at the person who's triggering it throwing at the person who's triggering it isn't going to change it inside of us Mm -hmm. We need to live through it and see what it's telling us about ourselves. And um, if what I'm just losing my train of thought now, if we if we can do that, then the answers start to start to come clear in 12 step rooms, group therapy, one to one therapy. All of these create a container full of safe triggers. And, you know, if you've been in therapy or group therapy or 12-step, you start thinking everyone in the room is crazy and they're out to get you at certain points in your trauma <laughs> work because you think, oh, my God, what am I doing? They're making me feel depressed again and they're making me feel anxious and this must be a really bad place to be. 
or my therapist must be, you know, and it, this is tricky because some therapists aren't good, you know, and they should be left. Oh, some, but some, a lot of what's happening is that we're getting triggered and re, we're reliving our own trauma and projecting it, making it about the person who's triggering it. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> what about, um, you talk a lot about in your books, but just like the minimization of what we went through, like wh- what would you have to say versus does a certain uh, form of trauma or abuse like Trump and other can, can somebody who is just emotionally neglected be as impacted as someone who was physically abused? Good question. And yes, absolutely. I, I used to find it easier to treat people who've been physically abused than neglected. It's very, you know, think about it. If you don't want to get punished in a jail, you put in, you're put into solitary confinement. If in a, in a sect, you're shunned, you know, we are pack animals. And one of the most painful experiences for pack animals is to be shunned or isolated. Uh, that's one thing COVID is doing. Um, it is throwing everybody back on their own inner resources because we are having to sit still. We're having to not distract ourselves. So it can be both a very triggering time and a time to really work through issues that are related to COVID. Mm-hmm. I mean, not related to COVID, but issues that are getting triggered by COVID, but that are getting triggered because as a child, we felt trapped and in COVID, we feel trapped. Mm-hmm. As a child, we felt helpless and in COVID, we felt helpless. Mm-hmm. And add to that, the gaslighting that's going on right now politically. And there's, as a child, we felt gaslighted and there was massive denial. And that is existing now in our in the world we're in. I mean, this podcast will you know, last far beyond that experience. Um, does that answer your question? So, so I like to help people connect with the person they were before the trauma took hold and got them lost in the reenacting. Mm-hmm. And once they do that, it's a very resilience building thing. Mm-hmm. The way you do that is through going through the pain that's blocking it. Mm-hmm. And the vulnerability, you see that child had capacity to be vulnerable but we need to get the vulnerability back too. When did, um, I'm not exactly sure exactly when the red book changed from adult children of alcoholics to include also dysfunctional families. And um, just for about five years ago, I think. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty recent. Could, you know, could you give some examples of some examples of dysfunctional families that wouldn't include you know, alcoholism? Well, let's uh, reverse that because what I find interesting about addiction is that, um, you know, this ACE studies, I'm sure you're familiar with adverse childhood experiences, uh, talk about, you know, they they didn't expect addiction to pop up necessarily. They were just doing, they were just trying to figure out what got adults into doctor's appointments. They wanted to re- look at the factors that made people sick as adults and they that was they discovered a massive mind-body connection that childhood trauma manifests as adult diabetes cancer um heart condition body aches you know all back problems uh fibromyalgia you name it so but addiction kept popping up for them as a very high factor and what that means is Cluster because addiction is never alone, right? It clusters. 
Things tend to cluster around addiction, neglect, abuse, emotional regulation issues, eating issues, sexual abuse, obviously raging. All of those tend to be clustering factors that, that are part of addiction. Now, if you grow up like that as an ACOA, you'll just go right out and maybe you don't use the, the booze or the drugs but you go straight to food. You go, you're a rage, you're a rager, you're a, a neglector, you're an avoider. You, you're a, you use work, you use um, exercise, you use food, you use sex to, to regulate yourself. So that is that part of a dysfunctional family? Yeah. I would say dysfunctional families where people can't feel their vulnerability. They can't talk things over. Uh, they can't connect with each other and they can't work as a team. They can't pull together and be a team. They can't have common goals, you know, so that all of the hurt that happens in that family can't be resolved. So it just forms this bigger and bigger snowball that starts to, uh, it's the elephant in the living room gets fatter and fatter and fatter because there's so much that's not talked about. And then you start to have, you feel pain around that. You, you question your identity, you question your reality, you question your self, your capacity to be a good person, your capacity to have meaningful relationships. So all of that. And then pretty soon you're, you find weed, you find beer, you find liquor, you find drugs, you find. And so that's what they used to call skipping a generation. <laughs> that addiction, addiction never skipped a generation. Just that part of addiction skipped a generation. There's no skipping a generation. <laughs> no, none. You might ask yourself, what, I mean, if I were working with you, I'd say, were there grandparents who were, you know, addicts or were they, what was their profile, for example? I mean, I would ask you that if you feel like answering it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's both sides. I didn't stand a chance. <laughs> what were your grandparents? Um grandmother on one side alcoholic grandfather on the other side alcoholic see so there there you go that's a very typical setup your mother then is the alcoholic and your father is the enabler he knows what to do when he marries an alcoholic right mm -hmm. you keep your mouth shut you ask your kids to come in and manage it and you take off you get a job where you're gone during the week you know that's i mean mm. that, this is such a classic pattern wow you don't get treatment. You don't get it for yourself. You keep it silent. You keep it under the rug. You keep it manageable and you sacrifice the kids. And they, and then you deny how bad it is. And you just say, no, Pearl, your kids can be okay. Hmm. And you think by saying mom's a drunk, so you can, is you're being really open or something, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and we used to also think if you shove the alcoholic into treatment, the family would get better. Mm-hmm. But the the rest of the family got sick alongside the alcoholic. So everybody needs treatment. No kidding. Now, what about, you know, I think one of the, my favorite things that you um, have in emotional sobriety is where you talk about when um, one, one member of the family starts to seek treatment, like for these issues, and, and the rest of the family um, sees that as a threat and retaliates. And I was wondering if you could kind of touch upon that. Well, that is, uh, you know, I could share my own experience, which was so clear to me. I was in eighth grade. My father was mandated. In, uh, in those days, you, you could mandate someone into a mental health facility. He refused treatment. So he was taken away in a white jacket, you know, 
I mean, literally with, uh, I mean, not buy a white jacket, but in one of those jackets. That yes, you jacket. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they tie behind their back. And he, you know, he became very suffocating once they put him in that and went to a mental health place to dry out and dried out and got, you know, well, my father was a binge drinker, so he looked great when he dried out. And then he had to go to Hazelden from there. That was part of the mandate. He went to Hazelden and lo and behold, left early because he'd gotten it right. He understood everything and he decided to leave because they probably got into by accident trauma work. You know, there was no trauma work back then, but they probably just got vulnerable and it was just too much for him. So he came home looking wonderful, seeming like my old dad. And we sat on the balcony. He, he had a glass of water. He said, this is my drink from now on, my only drink. And I remember the family circling around him looking so angry and mistrustful. And no one was happy for him. No one was happy for themselves. They, I mean, it was so distressing to, to recognize that. And even in eighth grade, I remember thinking, he'll never stay sober. Mm. He'll never stay sober because everybody's so ang- angry. And he didn't and we didn't because we didn't know anything about the family illness in those days. We didn't know how ill we had become. And we had gotten used to blaming one person. And by God, that has never changed. You know, our family has always looked for that scapegoat to blame. And I would say we have outlived that disease because we all kind of recognize that you know, we, we were, were smart people. We know what happened, but our dynamic never shifted out of that. We just outgrew it and kind of gave it up. We, we just don't feel like being mad at each other anymore. And we'd like to get along. So we're nice to each other, but, and we do love each other, but, but we never stopped that dynamic. It's, it's worn out. We just got to, we exhausted ourselves out of it, but not because we talked about it or identified it as a family or, clarified the dynamics within our family. And it wasn't because we didn't try. It wasn't because we didn't try. I dragged my family into therapy on several occasions, but it really requires that a dysfunctional family, each one takes responsibility for the disease inside of them mm-hmm. and embraces recovery. And it's very hard to get everybody to come to that come to Jesus moment altogether, you know? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of uh, how I see it happening, but there's a more enlightened world now. And I think people in younger generations, I, I hope, pray that uh, they're less threatened about talking about their feelings. You know, in my era, I'm 70. Not amazing. Nobody, thank you. Uh, nobody talked about their feelings. That would have been like, you know, why, why are you saying that? You know, now you go to, you know, living in New York City, you go to any restaurant. Uh, anywhere in any part of New York City, everybody's talking about their feelings. That's the nature. You you eavesdrop on conversations on down the block. People are talking about their feelings. So the emotional intelligence of our country has really elevated. Now, could you tell that by looking at the state of our country right now? No. Um, but we are integrating many, many, many uh, cultures, and we will find it again because. Uh, because that's what America does. That's my feeling. That's what we do. We find our equilibrium and we, we educate ourselves. And when, when education once meant literacy, I think today's education also means emotional literacy. Um, 
I guess kind of like in closing, the one thing that I wanted to ask you, and you know, I've asked Mary, my therapist, you know, the same question. I mean, you have spent 35 plus years in this field and you have helped so many people, like whether it's through your books or working with them one-on-one or training other therapists. And I just wonder, are you able to kind of like to, to touch into that? And like, when you reflect back on that, just the sense of gratitude, like how does, you know, you've really impacted the lives of so many people for the better. And that's, it's, it's quite amazing. Hmm. I mean, that first of all, thank you. That is a very generous thing to say. Um, and I say, you know what I think, in all honesty, I don't go around thinking that per se, but I feel good about my life. I feel good about, I feel like with my children, I mean, I wasn't a perfect mother, but what I had to give, I gave. I gave it my best shot and, I, and they know it. They, I think children don't need perfection. I think they need to know you gave it your best shot. And you get a lot of credit for that. And I, with my children, now I have grandchildren. I'm giving. I'm not perfect by any stretch, but I'm giving it my best shot. And when I goof up, which is regular, I ask for forgiveness. You know, I got mad at my little seven-year-old grandson for turning the Vitamix on. We were making tomato soup. It went all over the kitchen. <laughs> and the, when we did it the next time, I said, "Do you?" I got mad at you for that. Do you for? Do you forgive me? And he said, "We all make mistakes. We all." Make mistakes. And, uh, you know, so I, so I think I, I've, I've tried to walk my walk and talk my, you know, as a walk my walk, not just talk my talk, but I think I'm, I feel satisfied. And, and I think the reason you're asked or the reason I hear inside of that question is something to do with, I've done, uh, day to day, just, you know, what I could do. I've, I've put my sleeves up and I have done the, the work of helping and I think that is a tremendously satisfying way to live, not to uh, just have a fantasy of speaking and writing books and stuff like that, but d- day after day after day, just really helping people in an organized kind of a way. And we all have a way to do that. And you don't have to be a therapist to do that. This is doing that, this podcast. And everybody in business, people do that. You know, some business people can be so wonderful and it. it teachers, every every profession, plumbers, every profession you are in, you can live like that. And then and then I think you feel very good about your life by the time you get to my age, if you've just tried to contribute to the world. Because that's a very long answer, but no, it's beautiful. <laughs> well thank you so much. Um as I said when I reached out to you before, even though we had never met before today, your books have just had um a real tremendous impact on my life. And speaking, I was getting a little bit emotional last night when I was thinking about talking to you today and um, just um, where I was. I mean, there's still so much more work to be done, but this this podcast and speaking to you and your books that have had such an impact on me, it's all kind of coming full circle. Um, and I'm just so grateful for people like you who are kind of the pioneers in this and have given um, so many of us a chance to, to heal from from our from our dysfunctional upbringings. It it truly is, I think, the most profound work that we can do. And I'm just so grateful that people like you have 
figured it out for the rest of us, whether we want to do the work or not. That's another question, but I'm so grateful that there's at least the, the example, the opportunity to do the work. And um, seriously, from the bottom of my heart, like I thank you so much. You have, you have helped me so much. So I just want to extend that gratitude to you. I have to tell you that what I really wanted to call my book was a love letter to ACU mm-hmm. because I wanted to do just what you said I've done. And if I have helped you, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I will be posting um, links to your website, to all your books. I'm one of your biggest promoters. I'll go stand on the sidewalk and hold your books and dance. And we're just excited to see, you know, 70 years young. What what else can you give us? You know, waiting, waiting for more. Do you have anything that you're working on now? Any books or anything? Well, you know, I, I sort of, you know, I'll just answer that question. There are two. Um, and I haven't really even, I think I want to do an emotional sobriety in relationships. Mm. And um also a book called Sociometrics on the processes I use to heal. So so those are the two that run around my mind right now. Okay, we're excited. Well, that wraps up today's episode. I usually say at this point, I hope you heard something that can help you on your own journey, but I know you did. And if you didn't, you got some issues, okay? Like I said, I am so grateful for for Tian. We all need to be so damn grateful for Tian and all the other adult child pioneers who have trudged the path to freedom and recovery. Check out the show notes for links to her books as well as other resources. And now it's time for Hit a girl up. So I received a message on TikTok from Michelle who asked, what if you can't remember anything from your childhood? And Michelle, I was actually just having this conversation with a friend of mine. I am somebody who has a very vivid memory of everything that happened during my childhood, but my friend is somebody who does not remember a lot. And I think that that's very common for adult children. What I would say is that if you are asking this question, if anyone is asking this question, there must be some sort of an inclination that something wasn't right, that something was dysfunctional, or we wouldn't even be asking the question. So I think it's about starting with what you do remember, even if that is very little, and unpacking that, as well as to identify how we are feeling in the present what laundry list trait or limiting belief is causing us pain in our lives today, and asking ourselves, can I remember a time in my past during my childhood where I felt this way? Now, the answer might not come right away. And this also goes to my point on how important it is to work with a really good therapist who knows what questions to ask and can aid in safely bringing these memories to the surface. But of course, like all this healing shit, it doesn't happen overnight, but it will if we stay committed to doing the work. If you have a question, comment, insight, I would love to hear from you. Hit a girl up. See show notes for more details on that. So next episode, we are diving deeper into complex PTSD because this is a topic that is so fucking important. 
It's going to be super raw, super vulnerable, and I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. It's going to be a goodie, I promise. <laughs>